Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Up until April 3rd, 1977, few people knew anything about a place called Tenerife. In fact, most of us probably wouldn't even know the location of the Canary Islands. But on that day at an airport, two 747s collided on the runway. That accident left 575 people dead, thousands mourning, and Tenerife the focal point of world attention. There are some questions about that tragedy that will never be answered, although the chief facts about it are clear. It was a foggy day and the two pilots could not see one another. But for some inexplicable reason, the Dutch pilot began his takeoff without clearance from the control tower. Obviously, he thought he was doing the right thing, but he was not. The other plane was unable to get out of the way, and he couldn't avoid it. As a result, hundreds of people were killed. Every pilot is taught one very basic lesson at the beginning of his training. In an air traffic control zone, You do not do what seems best in your own eyes. You do what the control tower tells you to do. That is always true, but it is especially true when the visibility is bad. The reason, of course, is very simple. The controller knows things that you do not know. He has better information and a a better perspective to guide a pilot safely to his destination. Now, that's an obvious principle of aviation, but it is also an important principle in life. We live in a time when a thick moral fog has settled upon our society. The old moral landmarks have been obliterated, and no one seems to know the difference between right and wrong anymore. Ethically and morally, the visibility is zero, and people are groping for anything that will help them to find their directions. It is very tempting at such a time to try and fly by the seat of your pants, living by your own standards and doing whatever is right in your own eyes. We see that all around us. Our society is filled with gross immorality that is defended by suave, articulate, and attractive spokespersons. Today, you can scarcely find a perversion that someone is not willing to defend as essential to human freedom. I'm reminded of a man who summarized his life in these words. He said, I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures And all I get is abuse and the existence of a hunted man. Who was that poor, persecuted, misunderstood humanitarian? It was the gangster Al Capone. The point I am making is we have to be very careful who we listen to and who we follow. This morning, Jesus is going to say without reservation that he and he alone is the only way to God. Look at verse 3 with me. 
Jesus speaking says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? We covered last week about the place that Jesus is preparing for us. Now Jesus is asserting that they already know how to follow him. He has been showing them the way the Hey, hey, that's working. Is that okay? All right. We will delete that out of the sermon later. He has been showing them the way in the entire volume of his. saying he has been showing them the way the entire time through the volume of his teaching and if they follow that way they will come where he is and this should have brought them great joy Henry Venn a Puritan preacher was dying and his biography tells us this the prospect of being with Jesus made him so high spirit and jubilant that his doctor said that his joy at dying kept him alive another two weeks. We should derive great comfort from the fact that Jesus is coming to take us with him. But Pastor Bill, if you knew all of my inner thoughts and doubts, you'd understand why I'm not so confident about making it. Or if I do make it, it will only be be by the skin of my teeth. I feel like God is going to shake his head and say, well, I'm going to have to let you in, but I'm not real happy about it. I can understand that. Sometimes I can look at all my failures, even after almost 35 years as a Christian, and it can seem pretty discouraging. I mean, especially as a pastor, I should be way more spiritual and way more mature than what I am. It's then that I have to remind myself that it's not my righteousness that is going to be the standard. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
you know what church in the New Testament had the most problems? It was the church at Corinth. Paul had to write the majority of those two books correcting several different types of problems and sins that the Corinthian Christians were engaged in. But do you know also what church that Christians are called saints more than any other book in the Bible? Once again, it's those Christians in that Corinthian church. Now that gives me great hope. Even though they were still a mess, God still viewed them as his saints. Hope that encourages you this morning. C.A. Spurgeon once spoke of this in these words. He said, whenever I feel that I have sinned and desire to overcome that sin for the future, the devil at the same time comes to me and whispers, how can you be a pardoned person and accepted with God while you still sin in this way? If I listened to this, I'd drop into despondency, and if I continued in that state, I should fall into despair and should commit sin even more frequently than before. But God's grace comes in and says to my soul, Thou hast sinned, but has not Jesus came to save sinners? Thou art not saved because thou art righteous, for Christ died for the ungodly. And my faith then says, Though I have sinned, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And though I am guilty, yet by the grace of God I am saved and I am still a child of God. I say praise the Lord for that. But we do have some part to play in all of this. Because although we are legally justified apart from any kind of work that we can do, we will only enjoy the peace and the confidence of that if we are actively serving the Lord. I read about a Michigan factory worker earning less than $10,000 a year who was an unknowing heir to a half a million dollars. When located by an investigator some years after his benefactor's death, the worker explained that he had neither returned home nor kept in touch with his family for the last 24 years. The investigator who located him estimates there's about $40 billion of inheritance lying unclaimed in the U.S. alone. So if you have any family members that you think might be rich, I'm just saying. So I ask you, are you as a Christian unaware of your status as an heir of God through Christ? Do you fail to receive the gifts our Father offers that release us from the stranglehold of sin and the suffocation of guilt? Do we experience the power of the Holy Spirit to experience that abundant life, along with the joy and the fellowship of the Father and his other children? Or like the prodigal factory worker, do you live in ignorance of your inheritance? And do you exist at a spiritual poverty level because you have moved away and fail to keep in touch with our Father or with his family. I cannot overstress the importance of a daily devotional life and consistent church attendance. It does make a difference. Now let me just be candid this morning. The most miserable people in the world are professing believers who will not commit themselves fully unto the Lord. 
rather than experiencing the best of both worlds, they have the best of neither. If we as Christians think we can walk the tightrope of compromise and partial obedience, we will not know of spiritual victory and blessing. We will only know the bitterness and the frustration of defeat in our Christian lives. I know this to be true because sadly, I have tried it more than one time. So Jesus says that they know the way, but Thomas answers for them and says, no, they really don't. This leads Thomas into an expression of perplexity. He wants the position to be clear, and he will not let Jesus' words stand as though he understands them when he does not. Now, the man's fundamental honesty shines through at this point. He says he and his companions do not know where Jesus is going. Has Jesus himself not said that they cannot come where he is? How then can they possibly know the way? The whole thing seems impossible. It reminds me of Christopher Columbus, who, as they say, didn't know where he was going when he left, didn't know where he was when he got there, and didn't know where he had been when he got back. It would seem that the disciples knew about the Lord and they knew about his deeds, but get this, being informed is not the same thing as being impacted. Look at verse 6 with me. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is something that makes some Christians want to cringe. But it makes me want to do handstands, juggle, and set off fireworks. Jesus says, I am the way, singular. I am the truth, singular. And I am the life, singular. And just in case there's any confusion, he declares that no one is going to get in heaven except through me. Jesus now says that he has independently three things that cannot be applied to any other human in history. And they are, he alone is the way, he alone is the truth, and he alone is the life. Let's look at each of those individually. This begins by saying that he is the way. The Bible teaches that we may approach God only and exclusively through his begotten son. It says, Jesus alone is the door of the sheep, and all others are thieves and robbers. The way of salvation is a small, narrow path entered through a small, narrow gate. And Jesus says there's only going to be a few of us that find it. Peter boldly affirmed, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Thus, it is only he who believes in the Son who can have eternal life. But who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the Bible says the wrath of God will continue to abide upon them. Now, there are many offensive things about Christianity, at least for some people. But the chief offense of Christianity is its founder, and his extraordinary claims. It is true that the claims of Jesus of Nazareth often are not taken at face value. 
And when that happens, it's possible, possible to present Jesus as the loving, indulgent rabbi who was everybody's friend. But sooner or later, his claims about himself become known, and then the offense emerges. If there's ever a bone of contention people want to pick with believers, it is that of exclusivity. You are too narrow, they say to us. I don't mind you believing what you believe. Just don't say that it's the only way. Now, believe it or not, it's not just the non-believers today who are saying this. There are some who claim to be part of the church who have the same viewpoint. A leading Episcopal bishop is quoted as welcoming people to a multi-faith occasion with a syncretism that was simultaneously a blatant contradiction of Jesus and a syncretism that the prophets like Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah would all have denounced. It's a shocking example of the confused thinking that marks our day. The bishop began by saying, Greetings to you in the name of Yahweh, the Almighty, in the name of Allah, the Beneficent and Merciful. Greetings to you in the name of the Eternal One who gave the Buddha his great enlightenment, in the name of the Hindu Supreme Being that orders the cosmos. Now, I'm personally offended that he didn't include the Wizard of Oz and Santa Claus. Listen, we don't say that Jesus is the only way. It is Jesus who declared that he is the only way. Now call me narrow if you wish, but Jesus is the one who said, narrow is the way which leads to life, and broad is a path that leads to destruction. Now our expository study of the Gospel of John has brought us to probably the most exclusive and offensive of all of Christ's sayings. Indeed, it's probably the most exclusive statement made by anyone in history. And at the same time, we must acknowledge that if these words are true as Christians say that they are, that indeed, although they are exclusive, they ought not to be offensive, for they are actually what we need most as human beings. And thus, they should be received with joy and thanksgiving. Jesus says he is the only way. Now, a way supposes two points. In this case, it's a way for man's total ruin to being accepted by God. Now, people sometimes suggest that we are narrow-minded as Christians when we say that Christ is the only way to God. And we have to confess that this is precisely what we are at this point. We are as narrow as the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said this in the emphasis of the verse that he is the only way to God, and there is no other way. First, there's even the folly of even trying to find another way. Now, why would I say that that is folly? It is folly because if a way has been provided, it is nonsense to look for another. Who would seek for a second cure for cancer if a perfect cure had already been found. Just think of the odd nature of the statement that 
all religions lead to God or all roads lead to heaven. Well, that sentence may make good talk show fodder, but does it really make any sense? Can all approaches to God be correct? How can all religions lead to God when they are all so fundamentally different? Now, we don't tolerate such logic in other matters. We don't pretend that all roads lead to London or all ships sail to Australia or all flights lead to Rome. Now, imagine your response to a travel agent who would say that. You tell him, I need a flight to Rome, Italy. So he looks on his screen, taps a few keys, and offers, well, there's a flight to Sydney, Australia at 6 a.m. Does it go to Rome, you ask? No, but it offers great food and movies. But I need to go to Rome. He says, well, let me suggest Southwest Airlines. You say, okay, fine. So Southwest Airlines will take me to Rome. Well, no, but they win awards for on-time arrivals. Well, you're getting frustrated, so you reiterate, I need one airline to carry me to one place, and that is Rome. Well, the agent now appears offended. Sir, all flights go to Rome. Well, you know better. Different flights have different destinations. That's not a thick-headed conclusion. That's just an honest one. Every flight does not go to Rome, and every path does not lead to God. The next thing Jesus says is he and he alone is the truth. Now, we live in an age where people don't even believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. In his book, Stealing from God, Frank Turek writes, does truth exist? When someone says there is no truth, ask that person, is that true? Saying there is no truth is like saying I can't speak a word of English or my parents had no kids that lived or everything I say is a lie. He then says self-defeating statements violate the self-evident law of logic known as the law of non-contradiction which says that opposite ideas can't be true and untrue at the same time and in the same sense. But the vast majority of the culture you live in today says it is narrow-minded and bigoted to think that there is one viewpoint that is valid and correct. But of course, if you think about that, the hypocrisy of that is they believe their viewpoint to be both valid and correct. So this sounds great until you extrapolate it to the end. If people reject Jesus because his truth claims are narrow, then they must reject other claims. What do I mean? Well, people like narrowness in their pharmacist, don't they? When I go to get my Prilosec, I expect Prilosec and only Prilosec to be in that bottle. I don't want the pharmacist to say, yeah, the doctor told me to fill it with just Prilosec, but I thought that seemed a little narrow to me. So I put in some Claritin, some Lithium, some Oxycontin, and even some Estrogen when you have those hot flashes. <laughs> we also want narrowness in our air traffic controllers, don't we? If you're a pilot bringing the 747 in, you ask me, hey, where do you want me to land this thing? You don't want to hear this. Look, buddy, just land it wherever you want. We're letting everyone land where they want tonight. And finally, 
We want narrowness in our surgeons, don't we? When they took out my gallbladder, I wanted to have the confidence that they were going to leave the rest of my innards pretty much intact. I didn't want them to tell me upon my awakening that there were some parts that were, they were just kind of in the way, so we took those out also. No, we want narrowness when it comes to the accuracy of the truth, don't we? With a robust view of truth in the Christian faith, it is not true because it works. It works because it's true. It is not true because we experience it. We experience the glory of it because it's true. And it's not simply true just for us. It is true for any who seek in order to find because true is true even if nobody believes it. And falsehood is falsehood even if everybody believes it. This is why truth does not yield to opinion, fashion, or even sincerity. It's simply true because it's true, and that's the end of it. And finally, Jesus proclaims that he and he alone is the life. What does that mean? How can a person claim to be the embodiment of life? I guess it depends on what your definition of life is. If your definition of life is going to work, to earn the money, to buy you bread, to give you strength, to go to work, to earn the money, to buy the bread, to give you strength, ad nauseum, this isn't the life that Jesus is talking about. 1 John 5 explains what true life entails. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Those verses teach us that the only life that truly matters is eternal life, and that can only be found in one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. All other attempts will only end up in frustration and varying degrees of depression. The mythical story is told of Tantalus, a king who had been found guilty of giving the secrets of the Greek gods to mortal men. His punishment was to be placed in a river called Hades. The water came up to his chin, but hanging over his head were branches of luxuriant fruits. The punishment, however, was this. Every time Tantalus got thirsty and lowered his chin to drink the water, the water would recede. And every time Tantalus reached out to grab a piece of fruit, the branch would rise. So the refreshment for his thirst was right there at chin level, and food for his stomach was right there above his head, but the harder he tried, the less he got. The punishment for his crime was to be in the vicinity of a blessing and not be able to get it. The point of all that is, if you reach out fulfillment in just the things of this life, you'll discover that they're always just a little bit out of your reach. For nothing in life was designed to give you fulfillment except God himself. Everything else is just a cheap imitation. 
The things in life that many of us cling to for meaning and purpose must continually be hoarded because they so quickly elude us. The only lasting satisfaction in this life can be found in a relationship with God. Why? Because he made us. And so he alone knows what we need to truly enjoy life both here and the hereafter. And that is only procured through the cross of Christ. Once again, neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. Period. Case closed. End of story. In his book, Hearts of Iron Feet of Clay, Gary Inner tells about a young fellow whose Model T was on the side of the road with his hood up. He was trying desperately to repair it, but with no success. At a point of frustration and ready to quit, he watched as a sleek, chauffeur-driven limousine pulled off the road behind him. Out stepped a well-dressed man who watched the young man fiddle with the engine for a while. And then in a moment, the newcomer suggested that he just make one minor adjustment to just one part. The young man, of course, skeptical about strangers, did what was suggested only because nothing else he had tried had worked. Now, said the stranger, crank it up. So the young fellow took hold of the crank on the front of the car, turned it one time, and suddenly the motor burst into life and began to purr even better than before. Amazed that such a well-dressed man knew so much about cars, the young man asked him, how did you know what to do? Well, replied the stranger, I'm Henry Ford, and I made that car, and I know all about how it works. And my friends, just like that God who made this world and us knows all about it and how it works and it's precisely because of that reason that I care about the will of God for my life he knows all about me but even more he loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me and so I know his purposes are always going to be the best for me therefore if he has plans for my life I want to know them, and I want to do them. That applies to every area of life, at every stage of life. In every decision I make as a Christian, I want to know and do the will of God. I like what one commentator said. He writes, we should not overlook the faith involved, both in the utterance and the acceptance of those words of verse 6, spoken as they were on the eve of the crucifixion. I am the way, said one, who was shortly hanged powerless on a cross. I am the truth when the lives of evil people were about to enjoy what looked like a spectacular triumph. And I am the life when within a matter of hours this corpse will be placed in a tomb. As we finish up today, Christ came that you may have life. Will you come to him right where you are? You can come. You can come right now. Jesus does not require you to do anything but repent and believe. And what really could we do even if we wished to do something? Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God. Believe in me. Therefore, I can either drown in doubt or I can choose to say, Thank you, Father, that I'm going to heaven. Thank you that I can know your nature because I've seen it in your Son. 
thank you that I can talk to you freely because of the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the peace that you have given me in Christ Jesus. And so in obedience to your command, Lord, I will not let my heart be troubled. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you came to be that way. The amazing thing isn't that there's just one way. The truly astounding thing is there's any way at all. So Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts and reveal to us truly where we are. For this world has nothing to offer us. It's like eating cotton candy. It has no substance to satisfy. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about us, the glory and the lifter of our heads. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.